Grizzle had the pleasure of speaking with leaders in the mining industry at this year's 2023 PDAC convention, one of the world's largest mining conferences, to discuss the opportunities in gold, uranium, and battery metals such as vanadium, nickel, and lithium. Please enjoy our conversations with experts in the field from David Smith, CFO of Agnico Eagle, Ernest Cleave, CFO of Largo, John Champaglia, CEO of Sprott Asset Management, Mark Selby, CEO of Candid Nickel, and Robin Dunbar, the CEO of Grid Metals. Grizzle has the pleasure of interviewing David Smith, the CFO of Agnico Eagle, one of the largest gold companies in the world. David, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Now, there's a lot of macroeconomic uncertainty out there with central banks raising rates. Can you help us understand the risks and opportunities facing the gold market right now? I think uh, it's most op- mostly opportunity, frankly. The rates are going to go up, but I think we can see already that as we see the light at the end of the tunnel for the rate cycle, I think that gold is going to do very well. And, and we've seen it hang in at around that $1,800 per ounce level through this rising rate environment. I think what that says is that there is underlying demand. Uh, Certainly we're seeing that from central banks right now. But additionally, as that rate cycle peaks and as the US dollar probably has peaked, I think it's going to release gold. And so I think most of the opportunity is actually on the upside from here, which will of course flow directly to the bottom lines of the gold mining companies. And just back to central banks, can you walk us through that structural demand we're seeing from central banks for gold right now? And do you think investors are starting to shift away from holding the dollar or treasuries to gold? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what is going on right now, is central banks are continuing to diversify their holdings. I was reading recently about a lot of the central banks are now transacting in gold effectively for things like oil. I think that's been going on for quite a while uh, between China and Russia, and I think that's probably heightened at this point. Uh, but people, central banks have been diversifying for years out of that, that large holding in US dollars, which I think is natural and logical. You, you do want to diversify, but having a money that's outside of the control of any central bank is smart, not only for banks, but also for individuals. And what do you think are the benefits of owning gold equities over a gold bar right now? Yeah, that's very important because there's a different risk profile with the gold bar and the gold equity. And a gold bar, you know, you can buy it and put it in your pillow and sleep on it and it's probably uncomfortable, but it's the same size the next day as it was the night before. Uh, What a good gold equity should be able to do for you is actually grow your exposure to the metal on a per share basis. And that's what Agnico has been successful in doing for many decades. And I think one of the reasons that we're one of the premier companies in the industry is that per share focus, explaining why we're better than a gold bar. And Agnico Eagle reported record annual production in 2022. Can you walk us through your operational performance and what your outlook is for the future? Yeah, we we did have a big year in 2022, as you say, record performance. Uh, We're also going to have record gold production in 2023, uh, 2024, and likely 2025 as well as the company continues to grow. Um, Our our near-term forecast is challenged a little bit on the cost front because, as we all know, the inflation is here. Uh, But it's also one of the reasons that I think gold will go higher. So I'm quite confident that net-net will still have a great financial result for the investors. But the industry has struggled with inflation and that impact on production, frankly, because 
uh, higher operating cost has an impact on your cutoff grade and therefore your mine plans as well. So the industry struggled a little bit uh, with the guidance for this year, but I think long term the industry is on great footing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That was David Smith, the CFO of Agnico Eagle. Grizzle has the pleasure of sitting down with Ernest Cleave, the CFO of Largo. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And just starting off, can we maybe go over, you know, what Largo is, what your company does? Sure. Um, Largo is a very successful producer of vanadium. Uh, we've been in the vanadium industry for over a decade. Uh, we're the world's largest producer, primary producer of vanadium. We represent about 7 or 8% of world supply. Um, we have the highest grade vanadium deposit in the world, in Bahia, Brazil. And uh, we're one of only two producers in the world that uh, sell high purity vanadium. So we're a very significant player, proud to be in the vanadium space. And can you tell us a bit about vanadium as a, as a critical metal for this energy transition, the importance of it? Yes. Um, if you think about vanadium right now, it's actually already contributing to carbon reduction because you use vanadium as additive in steel. So it lightweight steel and re reduces carbon emissions significantly. So that's, that's a current use case for vanadium. But if you look to the future, vanadium is also used for instance, and this is a business that we also have within our portfolio, and vanadium redox flow batteries which support renewable sources of energy um, and can support grid storage uh, for, for energy. And let's talk about the vanadium redox flow batteries a bit more. What are the key advantages it has over other batteries for laptops or EVs? Right, so I should start off by saying that you're never going to see a vanadium redox flow <laughs> battery on your wrist or on your laptop. Um, so they're larger batteries, they, they're not as uh, energy dense as a lithium ion battery, uh, but they have some very unique char characteristics. So a vanadium redox flow battery doesn't degrade. So effectively you can get a usufruct out of that vanadium for 25 years. And that bifurcation of energy and power is what's so important for vanadium redox flow batteries. So we can be very cost competitive at long duration and we're inherently safe. If you look at a lithium-ion battery, that's not the case. So it's certainly, if you look at our major competition right now, which obviously is lithium-ion, there are many benefits to vanadium redox flow batteries. And could you give us an overview of the vanadium market and the supply versus demand dynamics at play? Yeah, so very simplistically, about 70% of world supply comes out of Russia and China, and that supply is all byproduct production. So. In the steel making process, um, there's a slag that's produced um, and vanadium is refined out of that slag. So Largo, conversely, is a primary producer. There are two other primary producers in South Africa. And so the primary producers plus some other smaller companies make up the remaining 30% of supply in the world. What are some of the key catalysts for Largo going forward? Yes, yeah, so very importantly, we're, we're on our path of, uh, of really really growing and supporting our fledgling vanadium redox flow battery business. So we have our inaugural project which is being delivered in Mallorca, Spain with a very large energy utility company called Enel. Uh, we'll be delivering that within the next couple of months so that's very important for us and then from that point onwards we're looking to grow the business. One of the important ways that we will do so is we signed a memorandum of understanding with Insolda Greentech in Italy, another very major uh, player in the European space. 
Um, and this is, this is going to be the vanguard of what we do in Europe. Um, and then we'll also predicate our success largely in the U.S. as well. So we're very excited for that energy business. Well, definitely a lot to think about. Thank you so much. That was Ernest Cleave, the Chief Financial Officer of Largo. Thank you so much. Grizzle has the pleasure of interviewing John Champaglia. He's the CEO of Sprott. John, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for coming in. It's great to finally have face-to-face -face interviews again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I just kind of want to start off with the history of Sprott. I know you guys were born out of the 1980s Iran oil crisis and have over 40 years of successfully investing in commodities. In your opinion, what are some of the core strengths that have allowed Sprott to create great outcomes for clients during these volatile commodity markets? Yeah, I'm always amazed at how many asset management firms were created around 1981. And when you think about that particular time in history, interest rates were almost 20%, inflation was off the charts. And it's amazing how many firms were born in that era of a very difficult investment environment. So, you know, hats off to Eric Sprott for making the, the plunge. And over the years, you know, I think we're best known for all things metals and mining. And over the last few years, we've made a big strategic pivot to stay within metals and mining and I think that served our clients very well. Unfortunately a lot of our competitors over the years have kind of left because of the multi-year bear market that we saw in all things commodities and I'm glad we stayed the course because I think it's paying off in spades right now. And I just want to pivot now to uranium. You guys manage the largest uranium fund in the market, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. Why was it important for you guys to create this investment vehicle that gave people access to the physical commodity? Yeah, well, obviously it's a very difficult commodity to access directly. It's probably the most regulated thing in the world for obvious reasons. But, you know, I think going back to 2018, Rick Rule, who's our largest shareholder, approached us and said, hey, the uranium market is completely broken. The, the price is $18 a pound. No company on earth, no matter how rich the deposit, could possibly make any money producing uranium. And yet at the same time, it's a critical mineral that produces 20% of uh, US electricity, 10% of global electricity, and all obviously zero greenhouse gas emitting. So, you know, our thesis back then was this market needs to basically reset itself. It was structurally broken. It took us a few years to kind of figure out our way to enter the market and I'm very pleased we stuck with that plan to enter the market and, and in July of 2021 the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust was born. It started with about 600 million dollars of assets and we're just a little over 3 billion so I think it's fair to say the investor response we've had to the Uranium Trust has been absolutely amazing. And now, how do you view uranium fitting into this whole energy transition movement? And do you think everything that's gone on with the European energy crisis has kind of given uranium the recognition it deserves as a reliable, low-carbon source of power? Yeah, I do finally believe that it is getting its, its fair share, and the narrative has really changed around uranium. I think uh, last year was a real wake-up call for the world, you know, in terms of the dual, uh, the dual goals of trying to decarbonize economies, um, and power generation is obviously a huge part of that, uh, that, that issue. And then second of all, uh, energy security. People really understood what happens when your supply of energy either gets cut off or the price of your fuel can go up you know, tenfold or whatever the number was last year when we, during the peak of the energy crisis. And when you think about the role that uranium plays in nuclear energy, it's a very stable form of baseload power. It always operates. It is, has incredible energy density which means you can store huge amounts of fuel in a very small volume of space, unlike, say, natural gas or coal. And obviously, the world is trying to decarbonize, and it's one of the cleanest forms of energy production. So I think investors around the world have kind of figured out 
this whole, you know, this whole puzzle, which is, you know, decarbonization, energy security, and reliable, affordable baseload power. It's, it's a really powerful mix uh, that I think provides key advantages over other forms of energy. Interesting, and I, I just want to shift over to political risks now. I know the European Union and Biden have been threatening to put sanctions on Russian uranium. What's the likelihood of that happening, and how would that impact the price of uranium? Yeah, I think for a lot of market participants, uh, they've been very frustrated because, as you know, uh, the world has sanctioned incredible amounts of, of industries and people within Russia for their uh, illegal invasion of Ukraine. But Right now, nuclear fuel is completely exempt and, and people are, you know, one year in, people are asking the question, why is it still exempt? And the answer quite simply is we don't have any capacity in the West to make up for the shortfall if we were to cut off Russia. Russia's been a longtime provider of not so much of physical uranium, but the services related to the fuel cycle. And if we were to cut those services off, we could be at risk in the West of, of having potential fuel impact. And so until there is capacity built in the West, I think governments and utilities have been obviously been lobbying their respective governments around not sanctioning Russian material. So ultimately, we think Russia will get sanctioned, but I think it's going to be a, a multi-year kind of transitional uh, process. And I know no one has a crystal ball, but do you see any other catalysts playing out in 2023 for uranium other than these sanctions? Yeah, I think one of the big things that we're watching is the restart of the Converdine conversion facility in Illinois. And the reason why that's so important is that's been the key bottleneck. Um, and this, this, this particular facility has been closed since 2017. Why has it been closed since 2017? Well, because the price of conversion services collapsed, Russia became a low-cost provider, and we basically offshored that service. Now, you know, a year into the war, everyone is scrambling to get that facility back online. And what that will uh, allow to happen, we believe, is basically moving uh, the industry from essentially underfeeding in the, in, during the fuel conversion process to overfeeding. And that overfeeding movement, uh, which we believe is underway, will basically create additional demand for uranium. And I think a lot of people are waiting for that bottleneck to clear and that eventually will, will lead to greater demand for uranium. And, and I just want to pivot now to some of your investments. Sprout recently launched four new ETFs focused on the energy transition theme, and I'll, I'll read them out. There's the Sprout Energy Transition Materials ETF, the Sprout Lithium Miners ETF, and the Sprout Junior Miners ETF, and the Sprout Junior Copper Miners ETF. Um, we, we focused on uranium, but maybe what's your outlook on the demand for base metals as this whole energy transition unfolds? Yeah, so it's, uh, I think it's a really fascinating category. I just came back from the Bank of Montreal uh, Metals and Mining and Critical Minerals Conference, which it's now called, and it was amazing to see 2,000 people in attendance, which was the record high in, I believe, 32 years. I think it's fair to say that the interest in mining has come back enormously. This is a sea change in our, in our, from our perspective in over the last two to three years. Two or three years ago, it was very difficult to talk to investors about mining. Why? Because everything else in the world was kind of working for them. Technology stocks, you know, an era of very cheap money, levitated a lot of asset classes, and people just weren't interested in mining, you know, for uh, whether the returns were low, the underlying commodity prices were soft, uh, some ESG concerns, and I think it was neglected for many years. And so we now have a situation where all of that underinvestment over the last 10 years is now kind of coming home to roost. 
and we're starting to see pinch points and, and, and uh, shortages and things like lithium and obviously things like copper becoming harder to find. So the world is looking at this investment opportunity, I think, through a very different lens. And then you have the governments providing very powerful investment signals. The Inflation Reduction Act, for example, which is the worst named piece of legislation ever, <laughs> really should be called Clean Energy Act. There's $369 billion of incentives related to some form of clean energy production or transmission. And that's basically the U.S. government signaling to investors, hey, come and invest here. We want to crowd in your investment. You need to invest in these critical sectors because we need to support renewable energy. We need to, need to support infrastructure and, and nuclear power. And so as, as capital is starting to come back into the sector, investors are taking notice. Commodity prices have obviously, uh, many of them have doubled or tripled or quadrupled in some cases over the last few years. And that's obviously getting the attention of a lot of institutional investors that we talk to, a lot of family offices. But it's still, I'd say, in the very early stages. It's not really the big, big money yet. It's still kind of the smaller, mid-sized institutions and family offices that have been the first movers. But, you know, from the conference, I see, I see the money starting to do their homework. And, when you've, le when you've left a sector for as many years as many investors have, I think uh, many of them are kind of in an education and research process. And, and that's really our job at Sprott, is helping people understand these very technical sectors. Well, that's definitely a lot to think about. And thank you so mm -hmm. much for taking the time to sit down with Grizzle. That was John Champalia, the CEO of Sprott. So Grizzle has the pleasure of sitting down and interviewing Mark Selby, the CEO of Canada Nickel. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for the opportunity. Now, nickel is being viewed as one of the key metals needed to achieve this energy transition. Can you help us walk us through, you know, what are the key drivers of this critical metal? Yeah, so, so nickel, the reason it's so important is fundamentally, it's the metal that gives the batteries the highest energy density necessary. And what energy, you know, translates to an average consumer is range. That's the thing that allows, if you're going to have a big pickup truck and you want to have a long range battery, then you're going to need, need a lot of nickel in that battery. So the battery company has been figuring out ways how to get as much nickel into the batteries as possible so that, you know, the big North American cars and trucks that we like to drive uh, can become electric. And you highlighted some very specific risks in your technical presentation at PDAC. Can you walk us through those in terms of supply, risks in terms of supply? Yeah, so so one of the things that I think, you know, the average investor really doesn't understand is, is two things. One, you know, uh, in Canada, we think of nickel as Sudbury, but you know Sudbury shrunk to being a very tiny percentage of global supply. Most of the, oh, more than 100% of the world supply growth has come from Indonesia and basically mining operations that have been established by uh, Chinese companies. And there's two big issues with it. One is, in terms of carbon footprint, uh, those deposits are basically taking a ton of soggy dirt uh, that has about 1% nickel in it and using a huge amount of electricity and then another big chunk of coal uh, to be able to turn that into metal. And as a result, you know, a lot of the nickel that comes out, out of there has a 50 to 80 ton CO2 footprint per ton of nickel. So, you know, that's not the kind of nickel that you want to use in an electric vehicle if you want to decarbonize the planet. The other big issue is if you're a North American or European car maker, you know, you basically bet your business that by 2030 or 2035 or 2040, you're going to be a, uh, an all-electric car manufacturer. Well, you know, you don't want to end up, you know, betting your company and depending on Chinese controlled supply, you know, from Indonesia. You know, the, the world got a wake-up lesson with the, with the Ukraine war, you mm -hmm. know, and the impact that we've had on, on gas prices. The reality is right now, Indonesia 
and if you throw in the Philippines or Russia or the Philippines and, and New Caledonia, those three countries alone control almost two-thirds uh, of global nickel supply. To give you an idea of, of, of what the importance of that is, OPEC at its peak, you know, when it quadrupled yeah. oil prices, only had just over 50% of the market. You know, so you know, those three countries have no issues uh, you know, intervening in their mining sector. Those countries need cash. And so, you know, I think over the next three or five years, the temptation to do something along those lines uh, is going to happen. And, and we saw that uh, at the, the, one of the G20 meetings, the Indonesian uh, government approached Canada to say, hey, mm. why don't we create an ONEC, just like an OPEC. So, so, so clearly really important to have a Canadian supply. Yep. And your Crawford discovery um, has, is going to play a significant role in North American supply. Can you just give us an overview of that? Sure. So uh, in just under four years, we've delineated what's the fourth largest nickel resource, sulfide resource uh, globally. Uh, if that mine was built today and was fully ramped up, uh, we'd be the fifth largest nickel sulfide producer globally. So it's a really you know, large uh, source of nickel supply. Um, but you know, more importantly, uh, these types of nickel deposits like we have is called ultramafic. Uh, the host rock that hosts these nickel deposits are made up of minerals that spontaneously absorb CO2. So um, you know, we're designing uh, into our process plant an ability to capture and store nearly 20 tons of carbon uh, for every ton of nickel that we produce. So we would be one of the largest carbon capture and storage facilities in Canada, um, in addition to be one of the largest nickel mines, nickel sulfide mines in the world. So we think that's a, that's a great combination. And we're really fortunate to be in a place like Timmins, that's an established mining camp. We have all of the major infrastructure that you need already in place, and 60,000 people who live in a number of communities nearby, you know, that are within an hour's drive of the mine site. So, you know, this is a, this is, this is a project that, you know, could get built. We're going through the permitting process now, and, and we think is going to be a critical source of supply for North American uh, car makers going forward. Interesting. And speaking of carbon capture, can you help us understand the benefits of nickel sulfites versus laterites? Yeah. So, so fundamentally, um, the way you have to process uh, a laterite deposit is you either need to use uh, a lot of electricity or you need to use a lot of acid to get, get the materials out. Um, and, and when you're using a lot of electricity in a place like Indonesia, it's all coal-fired power. So that's why you know you end up with this 50 to 80 tons of, of CO2 uh, footprint per ton of nickel produced. You know, in our case, where we are in Ontario, we have access to low-carbon electricity uh, from the grid. Uh, so we can design a mining operation to have a very low carbon footprint to start with. And then you know we've got again these rocks that were you know grinding up into very fine particles to be able to remove the nickel. And once those particles are there and fine, we take advantage of it by, by injecting CO2 um, in, in, that, in that state. And, and you know, th these particles have to do this geochemically. Like the, that's the beauty about this thing is if, if they see some CO2, they'll grab it and, and spontaneously convert themselves into this other mineral so that we can, you know, end, as I said, end up with a 20 ton uh, carbon credit uh, in terms of the amount of carbon that we can store per ton of nickel that we produce. And that's interesting because I know you talk about clean nickel versus dirty nickel and Indonesia, other third world countries and such can't do it in an ethical way. And if yep. we're going to mine nickel for this energy transition, you have to do it the right way. Yeah, no, that's, you know, I would encourage consumers to take a look at, you know, whatever electric vehicle that you're looking at and really understand where those raw materials uh, are coming from. Unfortunately, you know, there's a, a number of raw materials that go into a vehicle that, that come from, you know, whether it's Congo for cobalt, um, you know, Indonesia for nickel, where, yeah, you know, there's, there's some serious sort of ethical environmental you know uh, impacts um, that you're using from that nickel so you know I encourage people to do their <laughs> do their homework 
And, and lastly here, I just want to ask you, do you think Canda has what it takes to become a global leader in nickel production? 100%. You know, the, the great thing is both the federal government uh, and, the, and a number of the provincial governments, you know, realize that we have this once in a generation opportunity, you know, to create an entire uh, new industrial supply chain. Uh, you know, Ontario is one of the few places that makes cars. You know, when you step back and look at global auto production, there really, you know, only are sort of 15 to 20 regions or countries in the world that make cars, and Ontario is one of them. Uh, the other key piece of the puzzle is Ontario is one of the few places in the world where you have lithium, nickel, cobalt, graphite, all the key ingredients that you need to make batteries. And so, you know, by being one of the few places in the planet where you, you know, can basically dig it out of the car, um, can do all the processing steps that you need, um, and then and put it in a vehicle, you know, could set us up, again, for a big new industry, you know, that's going to help change the planet, um, you know, for 100 years. We just need to get moving and, and you know, so far, so good. Awesome, well thank you so much. That was Mark Selby, the CEO of Canada Nickel. Robin Dunbar is the CEO of Grid Metals and Grizzle is super excited to be interviewing him. Robin, thank you for being with us. My pleasure, Margot. It's nice to be here. Now, mining is hard, complicated and expensive. Why are the opportunities in lithium so exciting that it's worth overcoming these obstacles? Well, you know, lithium is really the, the metal of the future. Uh, fantastic uh, uses in the EV and energy transition uh, sectors and uh, there's uh, a tremendous opportunity in the uh, development of lithium deposits in, in Canada right now. Interesting and do you think lithium buyers are finally starting to value sources of supply that have lower emissions and are in more stable jurisdictions? I don't know about that. I would say that uh, they're, they're valuing uh, sources of lithium that they can get their hands on that are uh, you know reasonably priced that are in North America. I think the ESG considerations are there, but you know that'll maybe factor in over the longer term. But uh, if you're if you're producing uh, lithium that's uh, um, you know low carbon, that's better than high carbon for sure. And what do you think the opportunities or value is in operating and in, in, in fundraising in Canada versus the U.S. or other jurisdictions? Well, Canada has traditionally been a market that you know allows junior companies to raise money and develop projects, and uh, the uh, regulatory environment in Canada is pretty pro-mining. So those factors, um, together with the geological prospectivity, there's, you know, there are lithium deposits in Canada. Um, you put those three factors together and, and you've got a, a good uh, recipe for, you know, developing uh, lithium deposits and getting the money and the, the regulatory and, and all the things you need to, to bring a, a mine into production. You guys are going through a very unique agreement with Tanko Mines where you guys are um, giving them your spodumene concentrate before you guys build your processing facility. If this deal is successful, do you think it will create a new standard in the industry to accelerate revenue? Well, it's a, it's a model that the Australians have used extremely successfully and the market really seems to value projects that can come into uh, production quickly. So when you're not building a concentrator plant, which can be a $150 million cap, uh, capital expenditure, um, and that gives you kind of a much shorter timeline to production. So there's really only one producing uh, lithium mine in Canada right now, so it's not like there's a, a lot of you know, opportunities to, to do what we're trying to do, but you know, it is a, uh, an established route um, to develop a you know, a mining operation that they've used in Australia very successfully. Lastly here, I just want to ask you, what are the opportunity for, for nickel versus lithium assets and are there ways of leveraging the infrastructure to mine them in similar ways? 
Yeah, we think so. Um, you know, the base metals is a little bit different. Um, we hope to grow our nickel deposit, uh, you know, much larger than it is now. So that's going to be a project with some scale. We're going to have to put in a concentrator for that. That's going to be, you know, a longer timeline to production. Um, but the lithium and nickel projects are really on the same footprint. And so a lot of the infrastructure, roads and power and, you know, your workforce, a, a lot of things, th there should be real economies of scale. So, you know, that's something that we're looking at. And we're even seeing that in our exploration. We have the same exploration team. We go to the same sites and, you know, split the core at the same location. So, yeah, we think over, over time, um, you know, we'll show people we're in a really good, you know, mining area. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, got a lot to do there and, and, and we're well set up to do it. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with Grizzle today. Definitely a lot to think about. That was Robin Dunbar, the CEO of Grid Metals.